With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Ella Whelan, Assistant Editor at Spiked, and this is our last podcast of 2017. As such, we've decided to get on some very special guests. We have Mesa Gifford on the Kurdish fight for freedom, Dame Anne Leslie on feminism and Me Too, and the Labour Party MP Kate Hoey on all things Brexit. ISIS are being pushed back in Syria, and there is talk that they may soon be defeated. This is largely down to the efforts of Kurdish fighters, who have bravely and often without much support beaten back the ISIS barbarians. And what praise do they get? It's rare that you hear Western governments or even lefties praising the efforts of the Kurds. And while the prospect of Kurdish independence becomes less possible with the US and UK refusing to back the Kurds, you have to ask what is going on. And what is it like to be out there fighting for freedom? Well, for this final podcast of the year, I managed to get hold of Mesa Gifford, the famous British ex-trader who decided to leave home and go out to fight with the Kurds. He's been fighting and aiding forces out in Syria for three years now. Here's what he told me. So, Mesa, now at the end of 2017, tell us what it has been like for the Kurds. What have the struggles been and what are, more crucially, the gains been for the Kurds this year? Well, the Kurdish struggle is defined in a number of different ways because there's an ongoing struggle in South Kurdistan, in northern Iraq uh, at the moment, with the problems with the Barzani leadership and its failings. Uh, We've also got an enormous amount of pain and suffering in North Kurdistan, in Turkey, and in Rojalat, Iranian Kurdistan. And each one of these um, have their own problems, their own setbacks, their own solutions, uh, and all the rest of it. I have to say my own expertise and where I've been has been in West Kurdistan, uh, which is Rojava, where we've been fighting a brutal and bloody war against the Islamic State. There's been a a total absence of government for many years after the Assad army fled from the Islamic State in the early days, which has been plugged by the YPG and PYD, and now the SDS, and they're doing incredible things. They're just people who are rising up and defending themselves, pushing for a secular democratic future together. I think people are starting to wake up to what's happened in, in West Kurdistan, in Rojava, and have started to appreciate that the people that have many of the solutions for, for not only Syria, but actually for the wider Middle East. So it's it's a very exciting time, but obviously there's a much wider political game involved here. Uh, This has always been a a proxy war between regional and major powers. And the Kurds and the local people, with Arab, Syriac and Yazidi, have been caught in and amongst all this. So it's a difficult and dangerous time. We've been out there on the ground now for quite a considerable amount of time, not only fighting ISIS, but also, more recently, as I understand it, acting as a first responder, which is an incredibly tough and brave job. Can you tell us what it's been like? Well, it's been mad because 
it's very hard to articulate what the past three years has been like. I've seen the best in people and I've seen the worst. The best is in people fighting back, liberating themselves, people giving everything, including their lives, not only for to liberate themselves and, and to fight for their own families, but also to fight for their communities and for a, a better way of life uh, for everybody. And then, of course, we've seen how horrible life can be and how horrible human beings can be with the Islamic State and with the Assad regime. And being a first-hand witness to this is quite extraordinary. It's, you can only truly appreciate horror and the atrocious actions of the Islamic State if you're up close to them, if you're in and amongst it, if you actually physically see people dead, communities suffering. So it's, it's been a, a real sort of eye-opener for me. I'm a humanitarian. I'm someone who cares passionately about people. I went out there to defend people, to fight against ISIS, and also to come up with some solutions, to work with local people, discover what they want, what their desires are, and, and how the West can really help with them and engage with them. So it's been a huge learning curve for me. And half of what I do, or the vast majority of what I do, as well as being a, a, a first responder and as a fighter in Raqqa and other places, is I consider myself an educator. I, I've just gone as a witness and when I come home, I can tell people about it and, and what I've seen. And the fantastic news this year is that ISIS has been losing territory, that it definitely seems to be being beaten back. How much have the Kurds had to do with that win? Well, it's, and that's the very sad thing, is that the Kurds in Syria have done an enormous amount to defeat ISIS. In fact, if you, if you added up all the territory that Kurds have liberated, it's uh, by far the largest. It's, it's probably all of from the Iraqi government, the Syrian government, all the other people fighting ISIS, you put them all together, it's not the same amount of territory as the Kurds have liberated. So that alone is quite extraordinary. And, and recently we've seen the Syrian Kurds fight in Raqqa, the very capital of the Islamic State, and we've seen them liberate that as well. So what's quite extraordinary is the Kurds have also done this in isolation. Whereas we've seen the Iraqi army provided billions of pounds worth of equipment from the West with huge amounts of airstrikes and everything else they've got, as well as, 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 well as a huge amount of humanitarian aid as well. We've seen the Syrian Kurds get a, a minuscule amount of support. In those early days when they were first fighting back, these were young men and women stuffing their pockets with bullets, running out and defending their communities. And it's only with sort of growing confidence of the West, as, as the West saw the Kurds fighting back, liberating territory, did they start clawing support from the West. But it's not nearly enough. And it's quite unfortunate that much more than that, it's not just the lack of support, it's also the misunderstanding or the, the lack of understanding of who the Kurds are and what they want. There are some people who will paint the Kurds as nationalists, as, as those that want to tear up Syria, which is completely the opposite. In fact, the powers that be, certainly regional powers, have that agenda far more than the Kurds do. The Kurds want to have a united, secular and democratic Syria. Whereas if you look at other countries like Turkey or Iran, particularly Turkey, which has invaded Syrian soil, is funding jihadist groups and they're not providing any solutions on the ground. So it's, uh, and, and unfortunately their voice is heard a lot more in the West, in London and, and in Washington, than the Kurdish voice. Sometimes official policy doesn't match up with the realities on the ground. Well, let's push that. Why is it the fact that so many kind of lefties and Western governments are kind of very uncomfortable in talking about the Kurds and giving the Kurds their due? They really don't want to actually admit that it really is Kurdish fighters who are mainly pushing ISIS back. Well, exactly. And that's what's frustrating is that if we look at the negotiations in Geneva recently, which once again failed, this is the ninth round of negotiations in Geneva that's gone on year after year and time and time again we get failure after failure 
And um, if we look at the SDF, which is what the Kurds have helped create, which is the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is the, the group that represents all the different communities in northern Syria, and it's the group that liberated Raqqa. Now, they control about 30% of Syrian territory. They've liberated Raqqa. They have feminism as a core component of their ideology, They've because uh, they've got the women fighting alongside, which they're very well known for. And uh, they believe in democracy. They believe in a federated secular democratic future for Syria. Yet they control 30% of Syria, yet they didn't receive an invite to Geneva. Uh, yet if you look at the FSA, which is the group that was umbrella group of all the different groups uh, that were fighting Assad that were invited to Geneva, some of those groups don't hold any territory. Some exist only in name. They might have existed a few years ago, but they've been comprehensively defeated by Assad in Aleppo and other places. So while these politicians, paid politicians, are given money by Saudi Arabia and by Turkey, they swan around in suits in Geneva, and they're treated with respect by the West, even though they're nationalists, and many of them are uh, extremists uh, in the same sort of color as the Islamic State. They're swanning around uh, Geneva, demanding that Assad should go, yet they don't have power on the ground. They don't control any significant territory. They're losing against Assad, and they're still being as dogmatic as they were a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. It, and, and of course, if you look at Assad, Assad doesn't care. Assad is absolutely happy for them to keep demanding he goes because he turns around and says, well, I'm not going to go to the negotiating table until you drop your objection to me. And uh, he's happy to walk away from the negotiations because every day that passes, his hands get stronger because he's winning. He's defeating them. So it doesn't matter if it's in a month's time or a year's time when they come back to the negotiating table, he'll, he'll even have a better hand when they, when they do finally come back. So it's frustrating because time and time again, we've got all these failures. If we're serious about a peace deal, we've got to get the international community to invite the Kurds, to engage with the Kurds and get everyone sitting around the table and negotiating. Well, what has to be done finally then, Mesa, in 2018? Why is it crucial that we show our support to the Kurds? Well, what people need to understand in the West is that the Kurds are giving people back their liberty and, 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 and representation. That's half of what... Uh, created the fertile uh, ground for ISIS to rise in. If we look at anything from fascism, nationalism, extremism, uh, and fundamentalism, they, they're all breed in discontent, where there's division within society. It could be caused by poverty, uh, lack of education, political isolation, feeling that they're not part of the society. And that's what the Assad regime has done to Syria, is that it's divided people. Assad is not a popular president. He doesn't have the support of the people. And uh, ISIS exploited those differences and actually made them a hell of a lot worse. What the Kurds are doing, what the SDF is doing, is it's uniting people. It's saying to them, look, we're putting power back into communities and we're liberating you. You're, uh, this is not about control. This is about democracy and, and about freedom. And that inspires trust and people are genuinely getting on board. That's why thousands of young people from Mambesh to Raqqa are joining the SDF and joining these forces. So there are positive things happening because they've set up a new rapid reaction force, which is designed to fight ISIS and, and look out for any signs of them coming back. But what the West really needs to do now is recognize that the Kurds have got a political solution to the crisis in Syria, that they are part of the solution because it's a reality on the ground that they are a significant player now, that they control 30% of Syria. And if we invest in them, if we provide them with humanitarian aid, we'll actually make the Syrian people feel like they've been liberated. We'll actually stop millions of them leaving the country and tell them that, that Syria does have a future and it's a democratic and secular one. So what I want the West to do is just pump uh, Syria with humanitarian aid, rebuild schools, 
uh, rebuild roads and give people jobs, recognize the Syrian democratic forces as a legitimate opposition to Assad, and then let's get them all around the negotiating table. Because at the end of the day, SDF wants to negotiate with Assad. Um, Assad needs to wake up to the reality that he doesn't control all of his country, and he will come to the table if he's forced to by Russia and America. And, uh, and if we were to do that, then we've got a, a solid foundation to rebuild Syria. That was Mesa Gifford on the Kurds and the fight against ISIS. Now for our next guest. This has been a year of sexual harassment scandals. Countless controversies and exposés over the course of 2017 have led feminists to claim that women face epidemic levels of sexual harassment. Apparently we're being harassed in the workplace, at school, by our friends and strangers and bosses and co-workers. Celebrities are doing it to each other. MPs are doing it to each other. From Me Too to Pestminster... Is it wrong to class the kinds of acts we've been hearing about, knee-touching, kissing, texting, as sexual harassment? Was 2017 really the revelatory year that we got serious about sexual harassment, or was it more to do with a sex panic? The former foreign correspondent and Daily Mail writer Dame Anne Leslie got into hot water after arguing on Channel 4 News that women couldn't have it both ways. They couldn't claim to be empowered and then cry over someone making a dodgy pass at them in the office. So, who better to discuss the year of Me Too with? Anne came into our offices to talk to me, and here's what she had to say. Well, Anne, let's start off by just tell me what it was like for you. When did you first get into feminism, and what do you think about today's feminism in comparison? Now, I actually was one of the first people in this country who actually started looking at feminism, which we didn't have going on at all here. It was happening in the States. So um, I was working for the Mail, and I said, you know, this is an extraordinary movement, which doesn't seem to be here at all. Why don't I go to the States and look into it? And it had been started by Betty Friedan, who's a fierce little body, I must admit, <laughs> um, who had, was living the American dream, apparently, suburban, well-off American life, American dream life, you know. This is what women were supposed to spend their time doing. Anyway, she produced this book called Feminine Mystique, which was published in 1953. And it suddenly, a huge uh, readership and a great deal of rage. Now, it was a genuine rage, I think, now... People are using that sort of thing to make out that they are victims. Betty Friedan, she said, if you're a victim, it's because you allowed that to happen. She wasn't interested in victimhood. Uh, She was interested in women becoming empowered. She didn't use that word because empowered, frankly, was not a word that was used those days. It was fascinating stuff. I went back to London and started writing it. And suddenly, uh, this second wave of feminism, of course, there had been feminism with the suffragettes, uh, but the second wave um, suddenly took off. Great. And there was a great need then for what we call feminism now. And now today, the kind of defining project of feminism is the Me Too campaign, the panic about sexual harassment. What are your feelings on Me Too? What I really get enraged by with these Me Too's, even the name, it says, ah, I've been, I've been, 
been hit or my knee was touched. Me too. It's like a childish thing. You know, children say, oh, me too, me too. You know, and we're supposed to be strong. All of these things that we're supposed to be, this me too is saying, we're all too weak. We're in a frightful state. And when somebody touches on me, you know, I'm traumatized for the rest of my life. And I just feel like, get a life, you idiot. Uh, They make me furious, actually. And particularly, too, because I've been a foreign correspondent for about 50 years. And I know about the... (laughs) the way women are treated in other parts of the world. And that is real victimhood. I mean, that is appalling. And I was born uh, in uh, Pakistan and lived in India. So I know about the real problems that women have. And I see some of these women who are complaining, and I, I really feel like hitting them and saying, grow up, go to... Pakistan, go to the villages in Cambodia, go and actually see what uh, the treatment of women is in most of the world. And yet you're complaining because somebody said you were wearing a pretty dress or actually touched your pretty knees. Well, and so it does make me cross. You know, there is no justification whatsoever to carry on as if uh, you are being raped every day. And there is this feeling that if you collate uh, rape and touching somebody on the knee, as if they're part of I think they call it the rape continuum. How dare you? How dare you say that? And uh, I really, it has angered me no end. I mean, I sometimes worry that this is actually having a genuine effect on women, especially young women, that they are actually going to become scared of men, scared of sexual encounters. Do you think women are scared of sex at the moment? If they are activists, they're putting it on. Of course, women are often scared. I've been scared. And I've scared other people. I've scared mostly men. But they are not really scared. All these stupid, vicious women who uh, are very vicious about each other. I mean, I get death threats from other women. And so this is really the sisterhood, is it? I don't care. I mean, (laughs) because I'm now nearly 77, and I've had death threats from people who meant it, like, you know, war criminals in the Balkans and such. But these stupid, irritating uh, women, I think, are doing a lot of harm, not just to men, but also to women, because women are now a bit muddled. You know, are we supposed to be all powerful wonder women? Or are we supposed to be like little Victorian virgins shaking whenever they see a man, let alone his ankle or something like that? I mean, you know, I think uh, it's, it's difficult for women as well. Not because men are, are pushing them around. They are some of them, but of course, you know. Well, finally then, Anne, where do you think this leads? I mean, you've been extremely critical of not only the Me Too movement, but contemporary feminism as a whole. What do you think is going to happen now? Is this just going to spiral out of control? Or do you think that it is a trend that will die away? I feel that when they say idiot things like that, which is, you know, this is the worst time to be a woman in history, 
First of all, they have no idea of history at all. I mean, I don't think it was great fun to be a medieval woman who was uh, certainly used as a sex object and all the rest of it, and they had to put up with it. It thinks her so much better. I mean, my daughter, who is 30, she's sometimes astonished when I tell her about what we had to put up with. And I said, no, I did put up with it, but I learned skills. I learned how to deflect anything that's possibly going to be threatening. And I didn't blame myself all the time for being too weak or anything like that. And that, I'm afraid, is what's happening. And I think, actually, mostly, it just dies out. I think people in the end will come around to sense. One hopes. That was Dame Anne Leslie on Me Too. Now for our final guest. It's safe to say that Brexit is the defining political question of 2017, and it's set to stay that way for potentially a few years to come. Since the referendum last year, Brexit has been questioned, attacked, undermined, twisted, and now over 550 days after the leave result was announced. What is the future of Brexit? What has happened this year? Well, to discuss all of this, I decided to pay a visit to Labour MP for Vauxhall, Kate Hoey in Westminster. Kate is one of just a handful of MPs who have been steadfast in their support for Brexit. Kate, it's been a year of attacks on Brexit and it's it's hard to imagine now that we would be where we are now with people still calling for even second referendums, but uh, calling to overthrow the mistake that Brexit was, as they say. Did you think back last year that we would still be here now, still be defending that vote? Well, I think that I always suspected that those who felt very zealotry about remaining would not give up. And I think after the initial vote, they were so shocked that they had lost that they went into almost silence for a little while. But they've regrouped and have obviously got a huge amount of money from somewhere and have revitalised all their social media and their campaigning. And so the last six months in particular, we've seen a huge increase in the organisation of the Remainers. And I think sometimes it's quite difficult because here in London, we're surrounded by an establishment that is pro-Remain. We've got the kind of media around who tend to always seem to be wanting to put the EU's point of view rather than the, the government's point of view. And yet I feel that outside London, and indeed I know that outside London, this is a bit of a bubble and that actually things are very different. So it's it's taken a lot longer to get to where we are than I would have liked. I was pleased we had such a big majority for Article 50. I was pleased that we got the the second reading of the bill that's going through Parliament at the moment through. But behind the scene, there are a lot of people in this place who want to try and delay, if not stop, us leaving the EU in March 2019. And the most recent expression of that tension of MPs wanting to either water down or in some cases some of them directly kind of reverse Brexit was this discussion about the meaningful vote. Um, You defied the party whip there and lots of people called that action undemocratic. There's a kind of strange redefining of what uh, democracy means going on 
in the kind of desire to the 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 push from uh, remain voting MPs to say that MPs should have the final say on uh, the Brexit deal this whole discussion about a meaningful vote I mean why did you do that then? well I thought the government had already agreed that we would have a, a vote at the end of the process what this vote uh, this amendment that was put through quite cleverly by Dominic Grieve and some of the Labour Remainers, uh, was designed to really bring that vote so far forward that would give them the chance to be able to go back to the EU and say, we don't like this. Now, that realistically to me uh, won't happen because if we turn it down and we stick to Article 50 and we stick to what the Prime Minister has committed to, then we're leaving at the end of March 2019. So we'd be leaving with no deal. I also thought that putting that kind of amendment in uh, and showing the EU almost that there was the people who were prepared to do that made our negotiations much more difficult because the EU, I think, frankly, would love to delay it. I think they may have accepted now that we're not going to have another referendum because most other countries, when they voted against something the EU wanted, have been forced back to have another referendum quite quickly. I think they know we're not going to have another referendum, but I think they would like to make things difficult as possible, delay as long as possible. So I was not in favour of that uh, amendment. But given that it's happened and there were some people who were from the Tory side who really were trying to show that they really meant business this time. And then from the Labour side, even some of those who are quite anti-EU felt this was an opportunity to sort of give Jeremy a bit of a boost. So they drew back from voting. It struck me that this year, certainly more so than ever before, it's been so obvious in the way that the EU is um, showing its hand in the public, especially in the way it's dealing with Ireland. The workings that happen usually behind closed doors in Brussels are now being forced to come out in the open and some of it's really quite ugly, especially in terms of the kind of, you can almost say the bitching backwards and forwards from those in, uh, you know, the negotiations from our side and then you have Tusk or Juncker or someone coming out and saying oh well it wasn't very good or kind of schoolyard thing going on that kind of that surely doesn't surprise you because you've always argued that actually the EU is kind of deals in this way and it makes me and everything I've seen about the way the EU have handled this it just makes me so pleased that I voted to leave and was involved in campaigning to leave and I think for a lot of leave supporters out there not in this Westminster bubble, they will see it again as as a reason for getting out and getting out as quickly uh, as possible. You know, it's very interesting when I listen to some of my colleagues going on about democracy and parliamentary having having the say, you know, for years, it was only Bill Cash in the EU Scrutiny Committee, which I sat on, that ever really did any scrutiny of all these directives that were coming through with no parliamentary scrutiny in terms of parliament in, in, in the Commons itself, very little opportunity to, to vote them down. And even if you did, very little chance of stopping them. So there's a bit of hypocrisy, in fact, a big, big bit of hypocrisy around uh, amongst some of my colleagues and some of those who want to still try and um, go against the, the wish of the people. So what do you think about the most recent kind of news in relation to Brexit is the fact that some hardline Remain MPs have uh, had a hard time from the press. I'm thinking of Anna Subri and Dominic Grieve. And I mean, to some extent, rightly so, because they continue to uh, say that this is a big mistake and, and agitate against Brexit. And certainly at Spikes, we haven't minced our words about, you know, how much of the political class aren't kind of in some ways fit to wipe the boots of Leave voters. But do you think that in doing this, in kind of saying that the press or that the people should be monitored in their response to these MPs who are 
quite obviously acting out against Brexit. Is there a is there a danger there that M- that these MPs are isolating Westminster even more and drawing the Brexit discussion away from the fray of the public and the press and open discussion back into the closed doors of Parliament? I'm all in favour of of a free press, and I'm very much in favour of of free speech and therefore, you know, colleagues on all sides of the House have a right to say what they think and vote how they think and I've never been afraid to do that. But I think there was something rather suspect about the way that they organised this uh, rebellion and the way in which uh, all of them, uh, practically all, were lawyers to start with and then they all were people who hadn't really ever stood up to the EU over the years that they'd been in, in Parliament or outside Parliament. But I do think we have to be careful too. to, you know, a lot of people feel very frustrated down at the heartlands and the grassroots and they feel very cut off from Westminster and they hear all these things that are going on and they hear the interpretation by the BBC and Sky and the other media outlets who always seem to present the negative side of Brexit. And I think they do feel frustrated. And of course, some of them do say silly things on Twitter and, and, and some of them make threats that, they probably absolutely know how meaning to them other than just being angry. Having said that, of course, we have to be very careful that there isn't aren't people who are prepared to be really violent or criminal, uh, and that has to be watched. But it's also almost assumed that it's only Remainers got abuse. I mean, I've put up with a lot of abuse over the last period of time during the referendum and after the referendum and in the last month or so too. Um, you know, I've been called traitor. I've been all of these things, but somehow that's not, I've not got up in Parliament and made a big fuss about it. I've tended just to ignore it and, and, and concentrate on, 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 the, on the final end of the journey, which is leaving the EU. And this is a kind of funny question, but what has it been like in terms of, you know, people talk about the kind of, you hear, you hear people talking about the bravery of politicians standing up for democracy. and something. I mean, what has it been like being of the minority in Parliament in your defence for Brexit? <laughs> well, we're quite a close-knit group and uh, there's been a lot of support. And of course, in the campaign itself, we worked across parties. So we made lots of alliances with people in, in, in other political parties. And I think I've been here long enough now not to feel that, you know, I'm being, um, people are going to actually intimidate me. But it's obviously, I, I, it's more, it's not so much that I'm, I, I'm more annoyed that so many of my colleagues don't even come in and listen to the debate, don't involve themselves. It's, and it used to be all during the last number of years before the referendum, whenever there was any debate on the EU, there would only be about five of us on the Labour side, three or four leavers and perhaps two or three remainers um, or people who were in pro-EU like Mike Gapes who would come into the debates. There was never any proper debates on this. And it is disappointing that um, so many of my colleagues, although quite a few of them will come up and in slightly quieter tones say to you that actually they are a bit worried and they do support some of the things that we've been saying, but they're just not prepared to to speak out at this stage. Does it irritate you? It certainly irritates us at spite, does it irritate you that the Labour Party has now kind of basically decided by and large in terms of its proclamations on the Well, I don't market? think the Labour Party has actually said that yet. Uh, and I hope it won't commit itself to staying in the single market, the customs union. And I know that there are people at the top of our party who would not want that to happen. I think what the party is doing, obviously, they want to keep it as united as possible. I mean, I know Jeremy and John McDonald's views because they were in the lobbies with me all through the years. But I think confusion is probably a very good way of 
managing to keep all sides on board. And I think that means that most people out there in the public have really no idea of what Labour Party policy is because it does change each week depending who's interviewed. But long term, that's damaging to the Labour Party. And I think if the Labour Party is serious about wanting to win power, they have to realise that out there, there are a lot of people who voted for the first time in the referendum who were thinking of being supportive of Labour because of what was in our manifesto and that it's going to be very difficult to hold on to those people. Plus, we will lose a lot more people. We're, I mean, we're lucky at the moment because UKIP is not actually out there doing anything much and their new leader hasn't really come through to make himself known. So those voters are not going to switch over to us just because Jeremy's leader. They'll only switch over to us if they know that we're serious about leaving the European Union and that we won't renege on what we said we would do. Well, finally then, uh, Kate, I mean, you've it's remarkable that you have kept so upbeat about Brexit in even relation to the amount of, like you said, abuse there, but also the kind of onslaught from the media and many in the political class who are continuously downbeat about Brexit. I've heard it said that 2017 is the worst year on record. You know, that's a terrible disaster that Brexit's happened. Why do you uh, still remain completely committed to Brexit? And why is Brexit still a fantastic thing, do you think? It's absolutely the right thing for our country. And I think we have to always think of things in the longer term. And I'm absolutely certain that 10 years time, we look back and say, thank goodness, we voted to leave uh, the European Union. But that does mean that there will be difficulties and hurdles. Most of all, negativity from those people in the establishment and in the elite who really just could not believe that ordinary, decent, working class people on the whole were going to come out and vote to leave. And um, some of the way that those people have been derided by some of my colleagues being called stupid and ignorant and so on is quite shocking. So I'm optimistic because I think it's going to it's going to happen despite people wanting it to not happen. And I think the best thing that's happened to us this week is Tony Blair coming out and saying that his main aim is to uh, to stop Brexit. I think that's going to increase our support throughout the country enormously. This has been a big year for Spiked. In 2017, we've been the only publication to consistently defend Brexit and democracy, to fight for free speech, for freedom of the press, and to stand up to the misanthropes. I've been joined by some brilliant guests on this podcast, like Lionel Shriver and Peter Tatchell, and we've looked at everything from environmentalism to politicising sport, Trump to Theresa May, and sex to smoking. But Spiked can't run without you. And to help us keep on fighting for freedom in 2018, please... Dig deep and donate today. And from all of us at Spiked, have a very Merry Christmas. Christmas.